All right, we are back. We should probably do some science in this segment, but um, got a couple miscellaneous items to tidy up first. As always, we want to thank you, dear listener, for sending stuff in. One of our more prolific emailers has been Millicent, and I want to share what she sent last week. Since the article speaks for itself, I think I'll just read it. Juan Carlos Cruz, the former Food Network chef under arrest for a plot to murder his wife, allegedly planned to have three homeless men carry out the job. TMZ reports Cruz planned to pay the men with $1,000 in torn-up $100 bills, half before the murder, half after. Have already been burned with whole bills, then no show. That's why do it this way, reads a text message, which was reportedly sent from Cruz to a phone provided for the homeless men. Cruz also texted that he had a second party ready for the job if the selected hitmen weren't up to the task. The former calorie commando and weighing-in host was arrested Thursday in Santa Monica. The individuals who were solicited agreed to assist the Santa Monica Police Department in the investigation. Cruz was under investigation since May 7th and was finally taken into custody after an undercover operation in which the homeless men he attempted to hire recorded a conversation implicating him. Apparently TMZ interviewed the homeless men involved who said Cruz wanted them to strangle his wife, quote, because stabbing leaves too much blood. He didn't want a mess, unquote. Millicent's editorial comment was, this very fussy chef just wasn't fussy enough when it came to selecting the right men to whack his wife. He was too cheap to hire a professional, so he tried to use homeless men. And he kept picking the wrong homeless men. Why, some of them were dishonest. They kept the advance money and didn't do the job. Of course, then he made the worst mistake of picking honest men, who then turned him in. She further said, imagine $1,000 to kill from a man who could afford so much more. Not only did he not want to spend much, he also didn't want any mess. He just barely hates a mess. Said Millie, I say, if you don't want a mess, then don't hire Curly, Larry, and Moe. And here's another email we were sent. Just, did you know that the words race car spelled backwards still spell race car? Also, that eat is the only word that if you take the first letter and move it to the last, it spells its past tense, eight. And thirdly, says the email, have you noticed if you rearrange the letters in illegal immigrants and add just a few more letters, it spells out, go home, you damned, freeloading, benefit-grabbing, kid-producing, violent, non-English-speaking jerks, and take those other hairy-faced, sandal-wearing, bomb-making, goat-loving, raggedy-ass Muslim bastards with you. Adding, how weird is that? And if you didn't think that was the least bit funny, I guess that makes two of us. Because it's been my experience that folks that write stuff like that, they don't mind, quote, illegal immigrants, unquote, washing their dishes, mowing their lawns, being a nanny to their kids, cooking and cleaning for them, and in general, working without health insurance and getting paid under the table at a lower rate than you'd have to pay for Americans, Good old-fashioned, red-blooded, homegrown Americans to do the same work. Of course, if any of you out there thought that was funny, well, please resist the temptation of sending us more such emails. By the way, the guy that sent that to me is a pretty decent fellow, which frankly disturbs me all the more. And we'd like to refer you to the Scientific American uh, The Brain issue, currently available out on newsstands, for the article The Serotonin Skeptic. Something we've talked about previously on this show, and I want to mention again. Articles about how this idea of depression as a chemical imbalance 
is a rather questionable premise. Article by Carla Flora talked about this with the man who's the skeptic himself. That would be Irving Kirsch, professor of psychology at the University of Hull in the UK. Kirsch is an expert on the placebo effect. And Kirsch is quite, quite unconvinced that uh, the efficacy of antidepressants is better than placebo. Noted Dr. Kirsch in the article. Different antidepressants do things that in some cases are incompatible. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, such as Prozac, increase the amount of serotonin available to be used by the brain. Then you have the norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors, NDRIs, such as Welbutrin, that are not supposed to affect serotonin at all. And most recently, you have selective serotonin reuptake enhancers, SSREs, such as Stablon, which enhance the reuptake of serotonin rather than inhibit it. Noted Kirsch, these drugs all have different and in some cases opposite effects on brain chemistry, and yet they all show exactly the same response rate in patients. Apparently this whole idea that messing with your brain chemistry and, you know, correcting the imbalance was the, uh, the way to fix people who were depressed goes back to an observation that uh, reserpine, drug called reserpine, caused depression in some people, and it was found to decrease the available serotonin, which fit together with this notion. But there was only one clinical trial done to compare reserpine to placebo, and in that trial, the scientists who actually tested the reserpine for its antidepressant effects found that it decreased depression, not increased it. Nevertheless, I was shown many a video back when I was in medical school explaining how if you could just boost the amount of serotonin at your nerve synapses thanks to these wonder drugs, you'd cure depression. I was pretty unconvinced at the time and have been so ever since because, after all, you could make a video showing how malaria arose from people being exposed to bad vapors in low-lying regions. Because if you've taken any science classes, you know this whole thing of cause and effect? Well, it's sometimes hard to figure out. But, of course, if millions of dollars are at stake, um, based upon the notion that uh, the cause of your depression is the fact that you have a chemical imbalance, well, that just may tend to skew how people look at things. All right, let's let's let's... Do more science here. We've talked in this program about sleep a lot. It always amazed me in medical training that since scientists couldn't really explain what sleep was for, so in things like medical residency, they figured they could just deprive people of it. No problemo. Well, oddly enough, it turns out that sleep is important because we now have Harvard studies to prove it. Apparently over at Harvard, they recently took 100 volunteers and asked them to take a test on a computer that involved finding their way through a maze. After a five-hour break, they took the test again. Those who had stayed awake during the interim improved their time by an average of 26 seconds, while those who took a 90-minute nap did a lot better, improving their time by 188 seconds. But here's where it gets really interesting. The most dramatic improvements were among the four participants who actually dreamed about the test. Their performances improved 10 times as much as non-dreamers. So what's the punchline? If you dream about it, you'll probably understand it better. You know, there really is a probably associated with that because, you know, the other day I had this dream about an old girlfriend of mine. And, you know, when I woke up, I didn't understand her one bit better. Only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. All right, let's do more science. Apparently a study in Africa 
has noted that the African elephants are terrified of bees, which tend to sting them around their eyes and inside their trunks. Now, British scientists have recorded a distinctive call, a bee rumble, that pachyderms make as they flee a buzzing swarm. To determine if the rumble actually serves as an alarm, researchers broadcast the recording to 10 elephant herds. Six of the herds fled, even shaking their heads as if to deflect bees. Said Karen McComb of the University of Sussex, it not only proves the first demonstration that elephants use alarm calls, but also shows they may have very specific meanings. Researchers may now try to determine if elephants also have warning calls to alert the herd to other dangers such as lions and humans. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the next test they're going to set up will involve some recordings of Dick Cheney. And here's one we love. Apparently researchers at Loma Linda University in Southern California have now tested whether laughter is the best medicine. That's what people say, but in a series of studies, the researchers found that repeated bouts of what were described as, quote, mirthful laughter, unquote, offered some of the same benefits, including lower blood pressure and lower cholesterol, as moderate exercise. In their most recent study, researchers found that volunteers who laughed while watching videos experienced changed levels of the hormones ghrelin and leptin, which are known to regulate appetite. These hormones are also affected by exercise. The findings, said study author Lee Burke, suggest that some sort of laughter therapy might be an option for patients who cannot use physical activity to normalize or enhance their appetite. All right, and friends of Gary Larson may note they may have to change the punchline in one of uh, Mr. Larson's cartoons, wherein a scientist was looking down at his plate, <laughs> asking the waiter, what's this Drosophila melanogaster doing in my soup? You know, purists would have objected to that joke because actually fruit flies are not often found in soup. But they are famous animals because they've been part of such important genetic studies over the years. Fruit flies are easy to breed, and so for a hundred years, they've been kind of a model organism in genetics. It was the fruit fly that helped scientists discover that chromosomes contain small units of heredity called genes and helped unify research into heredity, evolution, and development. Today, it is thought to be perhaps the most widely studied animal after humans, which is why, according to The Economist magazine, some, to some scientists, it's almost unthinkable that Drosophila melanogaster may have to be given a new name. And to review a bit of biology, of course, uh, species have names like Homo sapiens or Boa constrictor. The names like constrictor and sapiens are the species name, whereas Boa and Homo are the genus name. In the case of the fly, Drosophila is the genus name. But the people who study the fruit flies have concluded that Melanogaster shouldn't be part of the genus Drosophila because they just don't have a common ancestor, etc., etc. These are all basically somewhat artificial connections, but there's logic that goes into it, and this has caused people to rename things in the past. Most famous example, Brontosaurus. Back in 1903, taxonomists renamed it Apatosaurus when it was discovered that two different names referred to the same dinosaur. This, of course, did not reach the people at Hanna-Barbera, they made the Flintstones. We're not sure it's also reached America's creationists, but that's another story. Anyway, people are actually fighting over this renaming, and uh, I guess we'll have to report on it when the dust settles. And in other biologic news, it's noted that scientists uh, 
from Washington State University went down to the Pitch Lake in Trinidad. Turns out that on the island of Trinidad, there is this vast lake that's filled up with asphalt. Natural occurrence. Someone decided to check whether liquid asphalt might be a home for microbes, and guess what? It is. Apparently they found uh, organisms in uh, three natural asphalt lakes in the past where hydrocarbons seep up from an oil deposit, but uh, this, uh, this lake in Trinidad is considerably more toxic, and yet they found a range of fungi, bacteria, and archaea in a thriving ecosystem, which of course makes people look out into space and wonder what we might find on Saturn's moon Titan, which we believe is full of similar hydrocarbons. Speaking of life in other places, there's a lot of frustration over the fact that uh, we've been listening for radio waves from extraterrestrial uh, possible civilizations for quite some time and just not finding anything. Some folks have pointed out that here on Earth we're moving away from radio broadcasts and perhaps civilizations don't use radio for very long, making it hard to find them. Like Paul Davies, a physicist at Arizona State University, has pointed out that widespread radio communications may prove a short-lived historical phenomenon here on Earth, and since, you know, we're using fiber optics more and more. So, what to do? Dick Kerrigan, described by The Economist magazine as a retired particle physicist, has enumerated several suggestions for uh, how we could find life elsewhere. First idea, look for pollution in the atmosphere of promising planets. This is an extension of the idea of looking for signs of life in atmospheres. The magazine pointed, it would, pointed out that it would be obvious to anyone who turned a spectroscope on Earth, for example, that something odd was going on. Air that's 21% oxygen, oxygen being one of the most reactive elements in the periodic table, suggests that the gas was being freshly minted, that is, by photosynthesis. And in some kind of exciting news from Jet Propulsion Laboratory in February of this year, Mark Swain and colleagues down there developed a new technique for calibrating data using ordinary ground-based telescopes, which allow them to look and identify some components of the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. In fact, they used it to detect methane in the atmosphere of a planet nearly 63 light years away. Previously, you had to have space-based telescopes to even have a prayer of doing this kind of thing, so this could be kind of cool. And I don't know whether our pal uh, Matt Kaplan has covered this on Planetary Report, a program which is heard on KDVS at uh, 9 o'clock every Friday morning, but, uh, but uh, I'm sure he will sooner or later, and we're going to have to go down and talk to some of the good people at JPL about this exciting science. And we're going to have to talk to the people at JPL about another thing they're doing looking at extrasolar planets, which, frankly, I don't understand. But reportedly, in the magazine Nature, Eugene Sarabin of JPL and colleagues described a stunning implementation of what is known as an optical vortex coronagraph, which they can use to blot starlight and get a better look at planets orbiting uh, stars out in space. I'm not sure how the trick works, but maybe we can have the good doctor come on and explain it to us. But the point of it is we'll be able to see much smaller planets orbiting other stars, which, uh, which we all want to do, don't we? Because let's face it, 20% of people think that there's aliens walking among us. Well, we, we need to find out where they came from. All right, and speaking of uh, planets, here in our own solar system, the newly demoted dwarf planet of Pluto has some 
really cool photos that have been sort of pieced together from the Hubble Space Telescope. I think we mentioned this in the show um, some time back, but I'm looking at the photos right now and I'm thinking, you know, this, this, this looks certainly as good as the naked eye view of the moon from the Earth, which may not sound like much, but considering what a dinky little dot Pluto is in even really good telescopes, this is some pretty good science. And, of course, we're all going to be excited when uh, the New Horizons spacecraft flies by Pluto in 2015, which at this point is just five years away. Speaking of dwarf planets, we'll also get uh, a look at another one, the asteroid series in 2015, when the Dawn mission swings out to Vesta, one of the largest asteroids, and Ceres, the biggest of them all. Vesta is interesting. It's not quite spherical. It obviously smashed into something or something smashed into it a long time ago, and we believe based on its kind of unique uh, spectrographic uh, um, fingerprint, as it were, a lot, of the, a lot of the meteorites we have here on Earth came from that particular asteroid. And uh, let's back out of astronomy and back into biology slash medicine and note that this, this month, May of the year 2010, marks the 50th anniversary of the pill. It was in May of 1960 that the first female contraceptive pill gained FDA approval and went on sale. Nancy Gibb, writing in Time, noted that in a half century, this humble oral medication has entirely rearranged the furniture of human relations. Writing in USA Today, Rita Rubin noted that in some respects, though, the pill has been a disappointment. Unplanned pregnancies, far from being consigned to the dustbin of history, now account for fully half of all pregnancies in the U.S. Yet, for giving women power over their own reproductive lives, the pill has become an enduring symbol of women's rights and generational change. So, Mr. McMillan, I think we ought to um, celebrate the pill. Speaking of hormones, how about this item from The Economist? And by the way, if you don't read The Economist, you know, it's probably worth picking one up now and again just for the science section. And you know they write so damn well, I'm just going just gonna to quote from the, the magazine. In all species that practice sexual reproduction, males and females show gender-specific behaviors. These range from the way they mate to the way they defend or fail to defend their territory. Both males and females start out with the same template at birth, but then... Something acts on the male to masculinize him for life. But nobody knows just how that happens. It goes on. It's well known that sex hormones like estrogen, which is typically seen as a female hormone, and testosterone, which is similarly seen as a male hormone, play a role in shaping the neural circuits in the developing brain. And that much of that molding takes place before birth. It's been established that testosterone, as well as being a fully functional hormone in its own right, can be, and often is, converted to estrogen in the body. It was reasonable to think, as many people did, that androgen receptors, which include testosterone, were mediating this manly transformation. But androgen receptors were found to be nearly non-existent in the brains of newborn animals. And researchers could not find them earlier in development either. So if there's no uh, testosterone-type receptors in the brain, what's acting before birth? Well, they came to conclude that uh, it may be that uh, there is some testosterone being manufactured, but it has to be converted to estrogen to <laughs> do what it does. And this goes to show that even though we've been studying this for a very long time, there's still a lot of mystery involved, and 
the subject of gender. All right, final item. You ever been driving along and see the moon kind of on the horizon and wonder how long it would take if the car developed wings or, more properly, a rocket? You could head to the moon? Well, maybe you haven't, but I have. And if you're like me and do the math, as NASA did recently, you'd find out that it takes 135 days if your car going at 70 miles an hour could take flight. Of course, that's assuming that you stop the moon, you could drive straight to it. And you thought that trip down I-5 to L.A. was bad. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, let Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words. 